these spaces will sit there vacant forever and it's clearly we you know we know it's because they're asking this exorbitant rent but it begs the question like how can somebody afford to have a giant space like that sit vacant for two years now hello everyone this is Corey canton and maurice singer and we are life per square foot so today we're going to talk about the retail environment and um i talk frequently about how the choice of moving to New York City is a lot about the neighborhood. And so typically when someone looks at their, you know, very small apartment for a very large price tag, uh, we tell buyers to go around the neighborhood, have dinner at a local restaurant, maybe get some coffee, see if you, you know, have a great conversation with the barista, um, and get a sense of where you're living. Um, and what's funny about that is that unlike, let's say, another place in this country like Colorado or California, whereas you might be buying the home so that way you can go skiing and, you know, maybe take a hike in the mountains, when you buy in New York, it really is about that neighborhood experience. But the neighborhood, you know, the, the, I think there's a podcast, There Goes the Neighborhood. Um, the neighborhood is not a stagnant thing. It, it can move um, very quickly. Um, and that has a lot to do with retail rents. Uh, so that's what we're going to get into today. So to that end, we have a special guest with us today, Deja Ammer. And uh, she is sort of a, um, you've been like a presence just in terms of the sort of commercial and, and uh, restaurant industry here in Williamsburg for a long time. Um, tell us who you are and what you've been doing. Hi, um, thanks for having me. I am currently the owner of Taco Chulo. Um, I've been the owner of Taco Chulo with Greta Dana for 15 years. And uh, I've seen a lot of the changes that have gone place in, in Williamsburg. Um, I am a Brooklyn diehard. I moved to New York from California to become a part of Brooklyn, uh, right before 9-11. And then 9-11 happened and everything changed. And so since I've been living in New York, I have been seeing the rapid changes uh, neighborhood by neighborhood. Being in Williamsburg for 15 years, when we got our first lease, we were paying close to nothing. It seemed at the time exorbitant. And since that time, our lease has doubled only. Um, Taco Chula's had a pretty fair lease. Uh, it's not near... Uh, Bedford Avenue. But when we moved into Taco Chulo, it was completely artist, punk, anarchist, and it's changed so much since then. Like at the time when you guys started, what else was sort of on like around you, like within like a block or two block radius? And also what year was this? Okay, so I graduated from NYU Food Studies in 2003. And I, my, my parents tried to get me to become a food and beverage director at the Gansfort or uh, in the meatpacking district, which was starting to come up. Um, and instead, I wanted to uh, become a small business owner and do it alone and do the entrepreneur thing. And so we looked for rents back then in Williamsburg. Just looking back at that time, Grand Street was bare. It was it was barren. It was mostly Puerto Rican and Italian families. Everyone stayed away from South Second uh, because of the gangs uh, and the violence at night. And the originally the block did not like us because they saw that we were gentrifying the block. However, we are women-owned and very community-oriented. So after a year, 
we became friends with everyone on the block, but there was very little retail on the block. And so going into that space, we really captured the market. So just to go a little bit into the past, and one of the reasons I think that this topic, while it's fascinating for, I think, every New York neighborhood, Williamsburg in particular has seen a dramatic shift in real estate values. So basically in 2005, the waterfront was rezoned, which brought a whole bunch of development. And so, you know, when Deja came, Ground Street was a completely completely different place um, than where it is now. You know, and I think it's really interesting when you have a storefront and you see who's coming in, you know, you really experience the neighborhood in a completely different way. Exactly. So, you know, I just want to say like two doors down when we signed the lease at Taco Chulo, it was the biggest cocaine bust in New York history uh, from 1981 or 1983. You know, the neighbors were bragging about that. There was a lot of kind of shady dealings that were going on. But you know, when we first signed that lease, uh, we almost went under. And then, you know, this thing happened to Williamsburg. Every 20-year-old uh, graduating from college on the East Coast decided to move to Williamsburg when they graduated and form a utopia. And thus sprung the hipster scene. And we just, you know, the first... I would say eight years of our business, we were just mobbed with hipsters. And that wasn't exactly what we were going for. But, you know, we didn't turn people down wanting to get drunk on Friday nights and have their huge birthday parties at our restaurant. But since that time, you know, I've really seen the neighborhood change on a, I would say, monthly basis. Well, I think, and, and that's one of the interesting things, is how rapid the shift was. You know, I uh, came here in 2006, which I would say is, is a little bit after the start of when things began to change, but I, it really accelerated, I'd say, 2006 to 2012, those six years. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and it's important to also note that this came, you know, this is part of a, a greater New York City shift, so the reason why Williamsburg um, ended up changing so rapidly was its proximity to the East Village. Um, and so just to give kind of some geography here, um, Grand Street is off the Bedford Avenue stop, which now is, I'd say, a global destination, um, whereas before it wasn't. And so it was really New York City doing as well as it did that the artists came to Williamsburg. And then, you know, it, it you know, created that shift. Um, you know, and as a small business, you know, welcome um, to anyone who wants to drink margaritas and have really great pork enchiladas, or perhaps that's what my favorite item on your menu is. Um, but you welcome everyone um, to come. And so, you know, it's an interesting thing, though, because, you know, I had mentioned earlier the 2005 rezoning, which, you know, really shaped this neighborhood. Um, but I've gotten an, a little bit into, um, I guess, community activism, and I've learned a lot about rezoning in the last couple of months. And you know, within that, um, I guess, within educating myself, what I realized was that large rezonings or whenever you change um, sort of the, the density of a neighborhood, I thought that retailers would be really excited by that. They'd be like, oh, wow, this is super. We've got, you know, a thousand new residents coming in. Um, you know, and to some degree, I think, you know, there is the benefit of the new business, um, but any really dramatic shift oftentimes causes instability um, because the landlords raise the rent more than the new residents order tacos. Um, so, so what are your thoughts on that? From my point of view, 
as a retailer, this phenomenon that's happening or that happened in Williamsburg when Bloomberg passed the rezoning, it feels like a boom and bust. Like, I'm going to tell you what it really feels like as a small business owner. Is it what we went through was a a boom and bust? So it it feels a bit like a ghost town Mm. Um, because the landlords uh, of a lot of these, not the high-rise waterfront buildings, but the ones that the landlords see as an opportunity to capture big-name brands to move into the neighborhood, uh, keep raising the rents. And therefore, none of these storefronts, you know, they, when the leases are up, the small business owners like myself are forced out. And then the bigger brands or the people that can pay the money uh, come in. And yet they also can't make it there because the rent is just too high. The boom is this feeling that it's going to happen and then it just doesn't quite take hold. It feels like there's like an inherent disconnect between the sort of a reality that landlords are either aware of or picturing or a reality that they're trying to sort of force like into the scene yeah. um, versus what can actually happen. And and you mentioned that, you know, we're not talking about the sort of larger high rise buildings. So we're talking about, let's say, like more of these kind of like three story sort of three unit with commercial overlay buildings that sort of make up most of the interior of the neighborhood. Right. Uh, like you, you can go down Bedford Avenue right now, especially on the south side. Like there, are even Bedford Avenue, which, as Corey said, is sort of this like name brand tourist destination spot, and yet there's a section, I think, from maybe North First to like South Second, that has a handful of commercial spaces that just are constantly empty, and places mm-hmm. come in and they go away. Like there's a drugstore that was there and that went away, and there was a, uh, a corner deli that sort of failed. That's because they were competing with like a, a corner deli that people really love, which was right. probably a bad idea for them. Uh-huh. Um, and and these spaces will sit there vacant forever, and it's clearly we you know we know it's because they're asking this exorbitant rent. So first, the question becomes like, how can these landlords essentially afford to have these spaces sit empty for a while? Another great example, I think it was called Blackbird for a while. There's a mm-hmm. there's an amazing prime retail space at Bedford and North, North Six. Six. Yeah, and nothing has survived. Nothing yeah. has survived in that space, mm-hmm. and that is such a prime space. It it's it's really. I mean, it's a shame, for lack of a better way of putting it. Yeah, like, how can they... A, a, well, we know why. They're leaving it vacant because they're obviously not flexing their rent. But it begs the question, like, how can somebody afford to have a giant space like that sit vacant for two years now? <laughs> Sorry for laughing. Um, I, you know, I, I know some of the landlords, um, and I can't speak for them because uh, I'm not a multimillionaire um, or a billionaire. But, uh, you know, I had another restaurant on uh, Union Avenue called Falafel Chula, and, uh, and it was the same, same deal. You know, um, my landlord, um, you know, they would flip it uh, and, and just try to they'd keep it empty. And, and I really don't know, like, this holding out phenomenon, for example, um, our neighbor, you know, I'm not going to name names, but our neighbor has been vacant for over a year now, a year and two months, and uh, and the place is going for a huge price per square foot, and it's a double restaurant space, and and it finally rented. But the fact that they've been vacant for that long has made it difficult for for Taco Chulo to stay in business. The other thing I wanted to say about all of that is, um, if you count the amount of small business restaurants that have gone out of business in the last decade, but really the last five years in Williamsburg, 
we are like one of the last ones standing of the pioneers that, that started the Williamsburg scene. And I think that's a big reason why we're, we've been holding on, uh, hoping that it'll bounce back. Well, but, you know, I think that that, in a way, is, you know, why I started by talking about, you know, how Colorado always has mountains and the mountains aren't going to go away. But Williamsburg used to have, you know, a whole, a whole scene that doesn't exist anymore. You know, yeah. aside from the people walking down the street, which, you know, used to be quite grungy and now wear suits. Um, you know, ultimately, I moved to Williamsburg because I liked a more casual vibe. Right. <laughs> and I did move from many of the restaurants and most of them are gone. And so I think it is really important to city culture that, you know, we have this fabric and that we hold on to it. And. There is a, a larger discussion, which, you know, I think is separate from this podcast about rezoning, which says, you know, what responsibility does a city have in terms of their larger decision-making process to try and keep some of what makes this city really, really special, which is the small retailers, which is makes New York different than, you know, a lar- lot of the major global cities. Um, but away from that segue... I know from speaking to you, Deja, from your original, um, what was it, uh, Chulo Falafel? Falafel Chulo? Falafel Chulo. Falafel Chulo, yeah. which I, I actually wish that I could have gone to because that <laughs> sounds really great. But um, you have a wild experience, I think, just even getting that space. Um, so if you will, go back in time and tell us a little bit about that. <laughs> I, you know, I wanted to open a, a falafel joint because I'm Egyptian. And, uh, and so I, I met the guy who owned this place called Uncle Mina's on Union, and he was um, Egyptian, and, and he was looking to sell quickly. And so I, you know, I bought his lease. Um, you know, I'm going to be really honest about it. Um, when I moved in there, we all got sick from where we were right on top of the subway. Mm. And we got sick from having to clean out the basement of all the, the rats and this is Union and what? Union and Metropolitan. Gotcha. We had to wear Tyvek suits, um, and my staff got sick, and we cleaned out uh, 30 dead rats from the basement. Um, the poor electrician decided to open the ceiling to get at the – I told him – I didn't tell him he could. He just did exploratory work, and probably 10,000 rat turds fell on his head, and he actually walked from the job. <laughs> And this is before you opened, or this is before. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm sorry. laughs> yes, okay, it's good. before I opened. Um, that's really funny. Yes, it um, it was before I opened. Um, but you know, we lasted there only um, about three years, and the reason being was because I didn't know that they were about to tear down the entire block and start moving that that hotel that huge hotel was starting yeah and so you know I finally just um you know I I sold the lease actually to um to Carmine of Carmine's Pizza after three years but my my feeling about falafel chula was uh it was just it was really rocky um being over in that part of Williamsburg and um so we, we walked away it's fascinating to see where Williamsburg has come. Mm-hmm. And, you know, within that, in uh, researching for this podcast, I was trying to figure out what is the average price per square foot uh, in retail spaces in Williamsburg. And the numbers are so diverse 
uh, for lack of a better word. It's like anywhere from one one fifty per square foot to four hundred. I even saw an article that said six hundred. And I think whenever a retail space gets a much higher per square foot, then it gets trumpeted. And then I think what happens is all of the retailers around are like, wait a second, I'm only getting you know one hundred twenty five per square foot, and so they they want to uh, hold out for more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that might be part of the problem. But what are your thoughts on yeah, this? Yeah. So I mean, I'm a real fighter. And, uh, and, and my business partner and I, we've been really holding on. Um, and, you know, when I was in grad school, my, uh, my teacher, Steve Zagor, who is, uh, like, I think that he's the director of ICE, in Institute for Culinary Education. Um, he kept, Not the other ICE. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, he said, location, 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 right? So, and a lot of people say it's the space like the real estate like the rent but the truth is and this is my experience if you are paying a cheap rent or an affordable rent but your space is not stellar meaning it's not a corner space or it has the cursed phenomenon you know like (laughs) which is the cursed phenomenon is where you see a retailer like we mentioned on north six in bedford where it comes in and it's there for you know six months a year and then it's out and in and so you as a neighborhood person you're like whatever comes in that space (laughs) good luck to you I mean, I'm, I'm interested in curses. So what is, what is, I mean, like you say the curse phenomenon and it's kind of air quotes around that, but it is sort of a phenomenon that's real. What is causing that? Is it just basically the people who are sort of putting roots in those spaces aren't, don't have their business plan sort of honed? I, um, I, I think it's the high rent. I honestly believe in the curse. Oh. I actually think that there's like ghosts and spirits that really? are, that doom a space, wow. that there's some sort of, vibe out there that's making a space unsuccessful beyond the rent beyond this I and it's deep in the psychology of the consumer like there might be a space in the middle of the street uh that that somehow translates into the human psyche as a negative energy but we it's subconscious I mean I'm telling you what I really think about cursed spaces of course, there's the obvious curse space, which is the rent's too high, um, the place keeps flooding, the food's bad. There's, there's rat turds in the ceiling. Rat turds in the ceiling. There's a bad neighbor who scares everyone away. Like, you don't want to go there because of this, that, and the other. Uh, but, but beyond that, I mean, it happens a lot. And so as a, as a restaurant owner, you, you know, one of the biggest things that you look at is how many turnovers the place mm-hmm. has had before you. Mm-hmm. Uh, to make sure that you're not taking a cursed space. That's that's a super kind of fascinating visual, and I I like the kind of concept of it. And I'm picturing you know you when you walk around a, like a neighborhood and blocks as much as we do in this neighborhood, you're obviously very aware of the corner spaces. That's why they're so sort of the most prominent and the most expensive in terms of rent. And so if you almost picture like a block in terms of like perception and like a heat map, so to speak, like those corner spaces are super hot because it's so visible. And mm-hmm. the farther you get towards the middle, mm-hmm. the more sort of murky and kind of confused I mm-hmm. feel like. And the, the less clear I am about what's in the middle of the mm-hmm. block, which I guess is sort of standard kind of commercial practice. Well, it, you know, it's interesting, like... Um Let's take. There's just one place in Greenpoint, Osomoko, and that's in the middle of the block, um, and it 
doesn't take up a lot of space, but it's super mm-hmm. popular because it looks so quaint in the middle of the block. Well, I mean, and, and that goes to design because mm-hmm. that space is white and it just, uh, like on Greenpoint Avenue, when you're going down, if you're driving past it, you will look left um, mm-hmm. in this you know, in, in my case, I did. Mm-hmm. I'm like, ooh, what is that? And then, of course, they got a whole bunch of Instagrams of their, like, you know, decor and uh, margaritas and such. So. Right. And, you know, like, in this day and age, you know, I would have said location, location, location is the most important aspect. Um, and that's totally true. But, you know, I'm thinking of wonderful corner spaces that have gone through turnovers because they can't afford the rent or the food's not good enough. And therefore it's like my final opinion that the thing that's going to make you a really successful neighbor as a restaurant or whatever retail is branding. It's all Mm. about branding social media and the media engine these days. Mm. Well, if you have great marketing and amazing food, then ultimately people are going to find you. True. And also deep pockets. Ooh, yeah. Well, and, and that actually goes into, you know, another point. So I was reading an article on what happened with Whisk, uh, which is a Bedford retailer that many people were sad to lose. And, um, you know, they were talking about how private equity firms uh, or larger corporations own a lot of the storefronts. So the people who are paying the two to 400 per square foot are not typically the mom and pops. And that, in fact, those retailers they're probably not making a profit out of that location. They're really using it as a marketing engine for the uh, company as a whole. So it's basically yeah. like a commercial that you can walk into. Yeah. Um, and so it's a completely different engine. And I think, you know, in terms of the um, diversity of rents, it has a lot to do with sort of the corporations coming into what used to be really more of a mom and pop environment and having a very different economic situation in order to afford those. Right. Yeah, it's definitely true. We touched on this, but, you know, Maurice, we were talking about um, North 6th Street. So both North 6th and Bedford, but North 6th particularly, has a lot of empty storefronts. Um, And there's that phenomenon in the West Village, you know, and and throughout New York. And, you know, one of the articles that I had read had said that um, Brooklyn is probably looking for the top, um, but Manhattan is looking for its bottom. Owners will keep their spaces empty. Um, and wait for, because they heard that somebody received, you know, two or 300 per square foot, and they want that number. And so they just leave it empty. And so North 6th Street and the West Village and Fifth Avenue even have these empty storefronts. Um, Maurice, you were talking a little bit about a bill um, that they want to pass in order to... Yeah, so apparently de Blasio is trying to get some legislation in effect where if a uh, storefront owner keeps it vacant for a certain period of time, they start to incur a penalty for Mm -hmm. doing so, which makes a lot of sense because if they're basically trying to artificially inflate a market by jumping the price of square foot from 50 to 100 to 150, they're effectively pricing small businesses, as you've said, out of the industry entirely. Right. So the idea is to make it less incentivizing for somebody to keep their storefront empty, which then always gets me wondering, like, who owns these storefronts? Like, in my mind, especially in Williamsburg, you know, I think about a lot of these sort of small kind of three-family buildings with commercial overlays, and I just imagine that it's a generational owner who's probably, you know, they've owned it for who mm-hmm. knows how long, decades, 100 years. And there's obviously no mortgage and real estate tax is relatively low in New York mm-hmm. City. So they can essentially afford to keep it empty because it doesn't cost them too much. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's the case? Or Corey had oh. mentioned there's a lot of, or maybe you mentioned that it's a lot of um, sort of corporate and um, 
uh, private equity firms that own these spaces. Mm -hmm. So they obviously came in and bought those at some time. Mm -hmm. um, and it's interesting, it goes from one person who doesn't have a mortgage to pay to somebody who has incredibly deep pockets and right. can continue to keep it empty. Well, um, you know, a, a few things that happen. Uh, you, uh, you move into a new zoning space uh, like Taco Chulo, and we had a zero abatement, a tax abatement for the first 10 years. When that ends, which we experienced, um, you know, the real estate tax is exorbitant. I do think that you're right that there's a lot of these old owners who've owned for generations in Brooklyn who just can't be bothered. Like, they don't really want to do improvements still, although they're sort of a dying breed. I mean, I feel like Brooklyn is selling out. You know, I think this is part of uh, a greater discussion, you know, just kind of looping back to the beginning about, you know, what is your neighborhood? And I think the importance of these retail spaces and, you know, especially with, you know, when I consider why I live in Williamsburg and what, you know, my life is, is filled with, it is important for me to be able to go to Taco Chulo. Thank you know, you. Well. It, it is like it, it really, you know, it means something to know who your neighbors are, where your food comes from um, and feel a sense of connection that this is actually a neighborhood and not just, you know, one big corporation. Yeah. One thing, and I'll, I'll add this as the last point, um, but, you know, having many conversations with my doorman, one of the reasons the commercial landscape has so many empty storefronts is because most of the retail um, or most of the consumer retail, a lot of it's going online. I do think that there may be a balancing out in terms of most of the storefronts now are restaurants and things that are services that you know need to physically be in the space. Right, um, so, like yoga. Yeah, like, like yoga. You're not ordering gym. your yoga online um, or getting your nails done online. So it is those retailers that I think are surviving. And I, um, to that end, actually hope that there is a little bit of a balancing out because it is so important to keep this neighborhood fabric. Um, and hopefully we'll have Deja on the show in five years from now. Let's uh, see. <laughs> talking about um, the experience of Williamsburg and, and watching the neighborhood come through your door. Corey, thanks so much. Yeah. yeah. Thank you so much for coming on. We are Life for Square Foot. Thanks, Maurice. Thanks, guys. <laughs>